Good morning once again. It is good to have you here. Uh, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, we are in a sermon series in 1 Kings, and uh, we've reached the sixth week of a six-week sermon series. And so this was something we started the new year with, where we uh, did, did our teaching in here on a Sunday morning, but also our kids downstairs. Uh, right now, they're going through the same basic passage that we're going through this morning. Our youth went through the same passages each week, and our groups went through the same passages each week. And so it's really been a fun journey uh, to be able to go through this as a whole church together, what God has to say to us here in First Kings. So I hope that you've enjoyed it. I do think, I, I kind of feel like this is the best sermon of the whole series. Now, I do feel like if I had talked to you the week number three of the series, I probably would have felt the same way. Uh, that's just the way these things work sometimes. That God is really going to show us something spectacular, I believe, in his word today. So I'm so grateful and glad that you are here with us. Uh, this series did cover six weeks. Uh, we spent about three weeks on the life of Solomon, the first king, uh, as we talk about a kingdom being provided that God, yes, he provided kings for our earthly kingdom, but he had something much greater in mind, and so we saw that in his life. And then now, the last three weeks of the series, we've been in the life of Elijah. And so today we're going to make a transition, because last week we left Elijah, if you remember, in, in a cave where he had been through some really exciting and really uh, energizing moments in his life, uh, but he had found himself at a moment of collapse, a moment of burnout, a moment of absolute fear, and he finds himself in the cave begging uh, to, to not have to do God's work anymore. And as he's there in the cave, if you remember from last week or if you know the passage there in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, he listens finally, not to the sound of the earthquake, not to the sound of the firestorm, not to the sound of the, the hurricane that comes by, but to the sound of that still, small voice speaking to him. And that's where we pick up this week of when he answers that call of the still, small voice, then what happens. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, if you're using that black Bible in front of you, it is a new international version. Uh, 375 is the page number that we will be there. Sometimes you can get lost. I just want to get you started so we're on the same spot this morning. 375, new international version in the life of Elijah. And so we're going to pick up in verse 19. And you'll, you'll find this morning as we talk through our text today, and I'll do my very best, uh, but we're going to have two names that are going to keep coming at you again and again. We've got Elijah and Elisha. And so the way to remember the difference between these two uh, Old Testament prophets is that Elijah with a J is alphabetically ahead of Elisha with an S as that finishes that out. That's how I remember Elijah versus Elisha. I'm also going to do the best that I can to be able to say Elijah with a really hard J, Elijah and Elisha, so that you know who I'm talking about, but I'll probably say it wrong, and you can mark that down in your connection card later in your comments and all of that, but understand that we're talking about Elijah and Elisha, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 19. Would you read with me? So Elijah went there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shabbat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and he threw his cloak or his mantle around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. The sermon title that you see on the screen this morning is The Gift of God's 
power. And as we look into this text today, uh, we look at the gift of what God has really given us. I think as I thought back through it this week that I've been given many gifts in my life and, and many of you have as well. But maybe the most significant gift was the way that I was raised, the place that I was raised, in the area that I was raised. And I know it's different than many of you and it's the same as some of you and some of you have heard this before and you don't care, but I'm in the pulpit and so I get to talk about it, okay? So this is the way that I was raised. I was raised the son of a dairy farmer. Most specifically, I was the fifth generation on our local family farm in Delavan, New York, about 60 miles south of here. If you want to get there, make your way south on the 90, then you pick up the 400, you make your way south on the 400, it becomes 16, in, uh, in, and then you make your way through Holland, and after Holland, you're going to hit Chafee, and after Chafee, you're going to hit Sardinia. After Sardinia, at the four corners there in Sardinia, and you normally would go left to be able to go to any civilization, but there you'll take a right instead and make your way about two miles down to the four-way stop. Hasn't always been a four-way stop, but it is a four-way stop now. You take a left on McKinstry Road. You go down the hill. You'll cross the steel deck bridge. It will make a very distinct sound, although they did remove that bridge about three years ago, and they've replaced it, so that's irrelevant to this story. You make your way up the hill, and on the left-hand side, you'll cross the family farm where I grew up, and across the street, directly across the street, is Mapledale Farms, where I was the fifth generation on that family farm. This is important to me. It's not important to you whatsoever, but let me explain why I'm getting there. Let me show you a few pictures to show you what it means, this gift of how I was raised, how I was brought up. How many of you have a picture of yourself as the cutest kid in the world sitting in a tractor? I got that, right? So that's my first picture. There I am sitting on the family farm. Here's the second one. This is me and my dad on the left. Uh, we are building the small barn on our property. Uh, my dad's there on the left and he's holding me up on top of the wood and I'm waving to all of my fans in the audience. Uh, and then the next picture is my mother and I uh, riding the horse there. I grew up riding horses and loved them tremendously. Uh, there's a side story that I'll just briefly share with you here, which is the next slide. I'm not going to talk much about cycling today, but I guess this was where it began. There's my mother and I, again, out for a ride on the bike. Actually, the next slide will help you see it a little bit better. <laughs> I told you it's a side story. Not important to today's message, but it was a cute picture. So uh, show me the next one, if you would. Uh, this is my sister and I, my next sister, Lydia. Uh, there's our cat there by the burn pit. Her name is Calico. And behind, uh, I know at least one of those cows is named Isabel. And I can't remember the rest of them. But that's uh, my background growing up on the family farm. I said it's a gift. Here's why I bring that up. Because I haven't always looked at my upbringing as a gift. I don't know what your background is necessarily. But I know there are times that we look back at those things. And we don't think that they're terribly special. Sometimes we're embarrassed of it. Uh, and, and for me, that was the case because uh, as I stand for you in front of you this morning, I don't come from a line of preachers. I don't come from a line of theologians, a line of writers or a line of business leaders that are well respected uh, in, in a city somewhere. No, I come from a small dairy farm in western New York here. And maybe you will also uh, acknowledge that that's the background that you come from. If you'll admit to feeling that way at times where you don't come from what people would call prized stock. But then maybe there's some of you who do. 
Maybe some of you were the valedictorian. Maybe some of you were the, the high school quarterback. Maybe some of you were the prom queen. And yet when you looked at your yearbook and it said all of these things, all the superlatives of who you were supposed to become, you don't feel like you're living up to that either. The reality is I read a Bible that's about regular, ordinary people that God used in extraordinary ways. And so wouldn't it be pretty spectacular if we look at this and be able to see this morning the way that God uses his regular, ordinary people and it would come alive to us this morning we would understand that he has a plan for your life and for mine. I didn't come from a line of preachers or theologians and neither did Elisha. But here we find him in scripture. And God has a very specific plan for his life. Today we will see how God calls him out, draws him out from where he was at. And, and my desire and my hope for you is that as God's word comes alive, because we are told that his word is alive and it's sharp and it's active, I pray that it would pierce some of you this morning, that you would know and understand that God is calling you out from the position that you're in here today. So if you've got that white sheet of paper, it's in your bulletins this morning. It's just an outline to help you know where I'm going and how we're going to get there. There's your first fill-in for you this morning. As God is calling you out, will you hear the call? The first fill-in is this, hear the call. You can expect God's prompting to be in the most unexpected of places. You can expect that God's prompting will be in the most unexpected places of places. First Kings 19, 19. So Elijah went out there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up and threw his cloak around him. So as we're coming into this passage, remember where we were last week, that Elijah is following the still small voice, the command that he was given through that still small voice to be able to take some step forward in obedience. And one of those steps was that he was to go and find Elisha. Elijah found Elisha and commissioned him to a ministry while Elisha was still busy doing his work. This is actually something we see in Scripture. It matches up with a scriptural precedent. The idea that we have to sit and wait for God to call us is actually not biblical. The idea that we are to sit on the sidelines until someone comes and taps us is not what we see in Scripture at all. Think about it. Moses was out tending the sheep when Jesus, when God shows up in a burning bush and, and it's literally right there in front of him for him to see. David is, they are looking for the next king, and all of the other brothers are available to have an interview with, and David is off doing what? Working and tending the sheep. Gideon is, is waiting, and, and he is treading by the well. He is making, uh, he is wasting his time, it would seem, as he is making grain, but that's where God meets him and calls him into ministry. In the New Testament, Peter and the other disciples are out, what? Fishing when they are called to what God had for them. He's in the most unexpected of places. He's out in the middle of field, staring down the behind of two oxen's behind. This is where God calls him. Just a few weeks ago was the Super Bowl. One of my favorite Super Bowl commercials of all time is one that shows this executive 
office, uh, this man with a really large desk, and above his really large desk as he stands there and tells his employees what to do, there's the moose head that's behind him on the wall behind him. And as you pan around, the camera goes into the next room, and there's somebody sitting on the other side of that wall working at a desk, and the rest of the moose's body and the tail and the butt is right in his face as he's trying to work at his desk. And the tagline says, do you need a new job? Monster.com. Something like that. He was called in the middle of a field while working the oxen. I just want to take an aside. It's not really my main point of the message today. But I want to talk a minute here about Elijah throwing, Elijah, I'll help you there, throwing the mantle over Elisha. When I say throw the mantle, in, in our modern context we think about a mantle. Most of us have maybe a fireplace with a mantle on it. And you think of Elijah coming and tossing that on top of Elisha. That's not really what's going on here. It was, it was the type of cloak that Elijah would wear. Something that was very specific and recognizable to him. And that's why we see in the New International Version the translation is cloak there. And so there's this calling. He's calling him. He says, I want you to serve with me. I want you to uh, work with me, to, to become me. And, and he is saying, I'm going to hand off to you the baton of ministry. It's a dramatic symbol that he just walks out into the middle of this field, finds Elisha, and he throws the mantle over him. And he said, God is going to do something spectacular in your life. There's this transition from one generation to the next. And it's something that we do as people with our, our children often, but we don't always think about it spiritually. Uh, I'll go back to some pictures just so you see, like sp specifically with my family, there's some mantle type of things that are being passed on. Let me show you the first picture is this. That's me a number of years ago. See my hammer there? I'm, I'm working on the deck in the backyard at, at our family's, uh, our, our, our homestead there. Let me show you the next picture. This was taken this year. Oh, it's sideways. My bad. If you can see, it looks like she's building on the side of a cliff, but it's really a deck. This is my daughter Maya is screwing in the deck boards on the deck in the back of our house. There's this mantle kind of handing off of saying, hey, this is something that's important I want you to be a part of. Let me see the next picture if you would. Uh, this is, again, the family farm there in the background. Uh, this is, I mean, it looks like it's from 1930, but this is about 1983 or so. Uh, my mother is there, and I, she's holding me. If you can see off to the left, and we have this big pile of driftwood in the back that's being cut up into firewood. Let me show you the next picture. Here's the passing of the mantle. There's Elias and the firewood that we have at our house. I don't know what he's going to use that helmet for. I'm not letting him run a chainsaw yet. But he was pretty excited about stacking that firewood that we were burning wood in our house. There's a passing of the mantle. Let me go to the next one. Do you have any family photos like this one? This was like our Christmas card for a number of years. This is my entire family on a three-wheeler. There's my mom on the left, my dad in the center, and all four of us kids on the three-wheeler. Uh, but there was a quite literal passing of the mantle that happened. So this is the first picture. Let me show you the second one. Now, I'm large and in charge driving the three-wheeler that lasted those years. My sister Lydia here is something you need to know about her. She grew up later to become a vocal pedagogy major and even an opera singer. So here on the family farm, she's dressed to the tees in some type of performance attire, and I'm whisking her around the farm on the three-wheeler. Here's the next slide. This was upside down. Okay. This was... 
a couple years ago, young Elias also taking his spot in the family line of passing the mantle on. He's driving a four-wheeler there on the ceiling, which is pretty exciting. So as we look at these pictures, what I'm trying to get at, we do this with our families. We do this. We have things that we want to pass on, but we don't always do so with such intentionality when we look at our spiritual roles. I want to point this out because there is something very specifically that is happening here is that the spiritually mature, and I will say spiritually mature because it's not always a uh, numerical age, but the spiritually mature here, Elijah, is out looking for Elisha. He is looking for someone that he can pass the mantle on to. And he is not going to just pass in the mantle and then go to Florida and look for seashells. He, he's got something very intentional that he is doing here, that he is asking him in. He's inviting him into a discipling relationship. And it's very important that those who are spiritually mature are doing this with intentionality. We see it in the New Testament, the way that Jesus works. We see it here in the Old Testament, the way that it was intended to be. And I say this intentionally as well because sometimes we see the opposite. We see the younger person who is longing for that mantle and they're actually going and trying to grab the mantle sometimes and take it, which is not appropriate either. At times we can see that being a very dangerous thing where there's an unhealthy young leader who's in place that should not be in place yet because they have usurped the mantle, if you will, of someone who's gone before. And then there's even a kind of a strange thing that's going on to some extent now where there's this idea of going to a, a, a former theologian or a former uh, a missionary or someone who's got great credibility in Christian circles and say, I want to go and visit their grave or I want to go and visit their church and I want to take their mantle on myself. And it's just not biblical. You don't need to do it now, but you can look later. There's literally something called grave soaking. The idea that you would go and visit someone's grave, lay over their grave, and that somehow there would be something spiritually transferred to you so that you could carry that mantle forward. It's just not biblical, friends. But what we do see that is biblical and what we do see God doing and working is that those who are spiritually mature with great intentionality are going out searching and looking for the one that they could honorably pass on the mantle their cloak to and so when that happens we must hear the call you can expect that God's prompting will come in the most unexpected of places my in-laws are visiting South Carolina right now. They're actually staying in, a, in the same kind of subdivision that they lived in about 10 years ago when we lived down there as well. Very close by to that subdivision is the Duke Power Plant. Uh, there is a large lake, Lake Kiwi, that is a man-made lake that is there. It's a beautiful place to go boating and that type of thing. But Lake Kiwi is there because there is a nuclear plant called the Duke Energy Plant there. And all of that water is there to be able to keep the nuclear plant cool. And so part of the family joke was when they bought that land, anyone within 10 miles of that nuclear power plant, when they purchase property there, they are issued, when they buy the land, they're issued two tablets just in case there's a nuclear disaster. Two tablets that will somehow be able to save your thyroid in the case of a nuclear disaster. 
disaster. And so the family joke always was, when there was a dozen of us here, who gets the two tablets? I actually did a little bit of research on it. They're called K-1 tablets, and they actually do work. And actually, when Chernobyl was an event, there was thousands and thousands of children who were saved because of these tablets. But all around the area, there are these large poles with big sirens on them that you know if the sirens go off, that you're supposed to rush into your house to wherever you have this really specific cupboard ready to be able to open the cabinet or pull open the drawer and you've got your tablets ready because you have less than 30 minutes to consume the tablet if there's a nuclear meltdown. The idea that anyone would be able to find those things in an emergency is unlikely. But there's a very specific thing, a very specific call to action. When you hear the call, this is what you do. Steps have been given. When you hear the call, take immediate action. Look what we find here in Scripture of what Elisha does when he hears the call, the prompting. He kills the cows. He kills the cows. That's your next fill-in. When you hear the call, kill the cows. When you hear the call, kill the cows. You don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. You don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, keep in mind here, there is some type of momentary pause. There's some type of freezing. He doesn't know what to do because Elijah has come by. He's thrown his cloak over him. And he has at least gotten to the edge of the field or further. Well, Elisha is there processing what just happened and he takes off running after Elijah. For a second, he has to think, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And go. He runs after him. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he says, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. When you hear the call, kill the cows. When you hear the call, kill the cows. Elijah says to him, uh, why are you following me? He says, well, if you want to go back, that's up to you. You can do that. He had indicated that he was not the one who was calling Elisha, that God was calling him, and that's between him and God, and his response was between him and God, and he was encouraging him to do that, but do it right away. Kill the cows. This was his livelihood. In the Old Testament, if you've made your way through the Old Testament through an annual Bible reading plan or just spent enough time in the church to be able to read it, we see that when God gives direction that he expects people to follow and follow immediately. When he gives Moses his directions, you can, you can actually summarize it in, in one word. He says, Moses, go. Moses, go. And he keeps giving that instruction. One day after another, Moses just follows instructions. He says, go. I'll go. He tells Abraham to leave the land that he was in. Moses, or excuse me, Abraham, leave. Leave and go to the land that I have prepared for you. In the New Testament, we see Peter. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter looks out onto him. He says, this is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen. And what does Jesus say unto him? He says, come. He says, all right. Here I go. One word. He doesn't give him any more details. He gives him one word, but Peter follows. One word, come. 
This morning you may need to hear one word for the situation that you're in. Because when you need to hear the call, when you hear the call, see I believe that we each will hear the call because God has said that he will interact with each and every one of us in a real and personal way. So when you hear the call, kill the cows. What that might mean for you in one word is if you are in a marriage that is broken and damaged and hurting and you've been going through it for years and you just don't know what to do, you don't know if you can do it anymore, you need to hear one word, stay. Stay. If you've been in a prolonged sickness or there's someone in your family who's going through a really difficult season and it just seems like you cannot handle it anymore, you need to hear one word, trust. Trust that God is big enough to handle the situation that you are in. If you've been hanging around the church for a while, if you've, if you've been coming and going for years, uh, but you just like come in on a Sunday and leave and that's all that we see of you, the one word for you is commit. Commit. It is a very biblical thing for you to be connected to the local church. It's time to commit. If you are considering adoption or if you're considering fostering, maybe you just need to hear that word this morning because you're trying to balance whether to do international adoption, local adoption, whether you're fostered to adopt, all those different options. You just need to hear that one word, adopt, because that's what God is, is sharing with you and talking with you. Some of you may be single. Maybe you're dating a real loser. <laughs> maybe he or she is a real problem. Every time you turn around, there's a fight. Every time that you interact with one another, it seems to be unhealthy. Here's your one word, run. <laughs> you say, well, I've spent too much time. I've invested too much in this relationship. We really want to get married, but, but we just can't seem to interact with each other. Run. Or maybe here's a better way to say it. Break up with that loser. Five words instead of one. When you hear the call, Kill the cows. You don't have to understand fully to obey completely. When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows. When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows. Those that God uses the most are the ones who hold on the least. Those that God uses the most are the ones who hold on the least. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. He burned all of the equipment. When we come up on Elisha there in the field, and now I'm reading into this some with my own farming background, and I get that, but I've never worked with oxen. I have no idea what this actually looks like. But when there's 12 yoke of oxen, I assume that there's probably two in a yoke, so we're talking about 24 oxen. I don't necessarily think that he's standing behind a, a row of 24 oxen with some type of bridle system that he can control all of them. I, I think actually there would be 12 individual yokes of oxen and he's the 12th and then there's servants and, and, and men working the field in front of him that he is overseeing all of these men and they're working in the fields and he's following along maybe much like you would see in the Midwest with different tractors and, and combines and systems that they would follow one another across the field. Uh, he's, a, he's a wealthy man. He's got a lot of influence. He's got a lot that he has grown there while working the farm. He's working 12 yoke of oxen. He's wealthy. This choice that he is going to make when he hears the call and he kills the cows and he burns the plows, he is making a decision that affects all of these men and their families that are there working for him. 
This is not only his own livelihood, this is their livelihood as well. And so what does he do? He literally destroys the tools of his trade so that he cannot return to them. And what does he do? He invites them and he says, we are, we're going to put a sacrifice here because we see that as a scriptural thing that we can do because we see that precedent given over and over and over to the Israelites. And so that's what he does. He says, I don't know exactly what I'm getting into. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know how this is going to affect all of you, but come and we will sacrifice before the Lord and see what God is going to do with it. This would affect all of them, friends. But he gave it up and put it before the Lord as a sacrifice. When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows. For me specifically, I absolutely loved the farm life. I did not love the cows. I will say that. I would have no problem hearing the call and killing the cows. I loved the equipment, I love the fields. We had a farmer up the street from us that he didn't have any animals, he just had machinery and he, he tended a lot of the fields for a lot of the farmers in the area because he invested in uh, a lot of large machinery so that he could do that. I thought that might be something that I would really enjoy doing. I had no intention of going to college, I had no intention of leaving the family farm, I loved it there. But God had different plans for my life, and so did my dad. My dad was going to kick me out of the nest for at least a year. I was going to have to go to the college, go to the military. I would have to leave home before I could come back. That was the way that he made sure of it for me. And so I left home. I joined the Marine Corps. And as I left, within a year, about a year and a half later, the farm failed. It collapsed. A farm that had been able to, to support five to seven families every year now after 9-11 wasn't going to be able to support uh, even two families at that point. And so the farm was sold. The machinery was sold. It was, it was one of those situations where I didn't have the thing to come back to that I thought was going to be my fallback plan. But the interesting thing about that was that the, the, the family land was still there, the farm was still there, just we didn't have any cows anymore, we didn't have any machinery anymore. But for whatever reason, I thought that I would always be able to be on the farm. I've got a picture here that kind of demonstrates this. You can throw it on the thing. Here's the smaller version of it. That's me on the left driving my tractor, the power pole. Uh, tractor. I did a lot of work with that tractor. Let me tell you what. I moved a lot of soil with that. Uh, my three sisters there, uh, again, uh, Lydia, who would one day become an opera singer. She's got some nice jewelry on there to be in the barn uh, for sure. And Rael doesn't even have any pants on. So that's cool. Look closely, if you would, it's just something about the way that God works, because this is what I thought that I was giving up and never coming back to. If you look at the red hat that I'm wearing, some of you know what that is. What's that red hat? Can you see it? International Harvester. That's a brand of tractor that's very important to me. You've heard of the John Deere man. Uh, I don't like the John Deere man. I like the International Harvester man, because uh, that hat was representative of the, the, the machinery that we used and that type of thing. Isn't it just kind of neat the way that God works? Let me explain to you why. Because over here, just this year, I have myself my International Harvester hat. But where did I get this hat? If you look very closely there, at the top, it says International Harvester North American Mission Board. And on the front of it has the IH logo. What happened last year 
was the church planning organization that we partner with and do a lot of different things with, decided, because they had some redneck that got in their uh, offices, they said, you know what we could do? And they called up International Harvester, which has been a tractor company that's been defunct for a number of years, and they said, is there any chance that you have some hats left back in your warehouse? They said, we've got thousands of them. No one ever wants to buy these things. He said, what if we bought all of them and put our logo on them, and this means something entirely different to our people. Let me explain to you what it means. You know, Jesus Christ is the international harvester. And so that's the idea behind it. So of all things, what I thought was going to be a life on the family farm, God had called me to something different. And something as silly as a hat reminds me now of what he has called me to, that he has me working for, not the family farm, not Mapledale Farms, but for the international harvester himself. Isn't that neat the way that God works? Isn't that interesting the way that he interacts with us on a very personal level. When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows. This meant a great deal, I believe, to the older prophet, Elijah. Going back to the point we were making earlier, the idea of the handing over of the baton, the, the, the throwing the mantle on the younger one. As Elijah watches this happen, as he, he experiences his young Elisha decide to sacrifice and give it all, he has got to be reminded of the moment that he was in not so long ago, huddling in a cave, not sure that if God had anything left for him in his life. And he says, take it all away from me. I would rather die here. There's nothing left for me. I would die with my ancestors. Bury me now in this cave. Let's do it. But now he has young Elisha who has given up everything to travel with him, to learn from him. He had been afraid in the cave. When he hears the small voice and he answers the call, God begins to do something spectacular. Elijah is no longer a lone ranger. Elijah is no longer the only one out there. He never was in the first place, but that feeling of that is no longer. He has this work that's going to go beyond him, and he has a servant. He has someone who's going to go with him day in and day out, year after year after year. He would be able to give him the baton. And as we look at Scripture, he just doesn't seem to have time anymore for that previous moment of despair because God has done something spectacular in giving him Elisha. When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows, and get to going. Get to going. Now, I spent about 10 years in South Carolina, and this is something that they say there. I know it's not something we say here. There was a group of us that would meet oftentimes Wednesday night after our church service and go to Sonic. I know we have one finally here. And the girls would come out on roller skates and bring your meals and that type of thing. And we had one family who, who drove a pretty long ways. They drove about 45 minutes to church all the time. They were there Wednesday night. And it just seemed like we were having a good time just on a summer evening sitting out there at Sonic and enjoying our time. And then the one, one of them would finally say to his wife, he said, well, it's time we get to going. Something like that. It's time we get to going. What does he mean by that? It's, it's time that we get to the action of moving on, going on to the next thing. This was nice here, but we've got to move on to the next thing. In Philippians chapter 3 we read, we forget what is behind and we strain toward what's ahead. There's so much more behind that in Philippians. There's an encouraging word for you. We begin Philippians next week. I hope that you'll be here. We forget what's behind and we strain toward what's ahead. 1 Kings 19 says, then he set out, he set himself to follow Elijah and become his servant. 
Elisha would spend the rest of his life following in Elijah's footsteps. Elisha would be bold enough to ask God for a double blessing of what he had seen Elijah do. And if you want to read this week and turn over a few pages to, to 2 Kings, you'll find that miracle after miracle, you can count them up. There's double the portion, double the number of miracles that Elisha does in his life through God's power than Elijah did in his life. Most exciting of which is this. In Elijah's last day on the earth, Elisha is traveling with him. Going along with him in 2 Kings chapter 2. He says, I am going to be taken today, Elijah tells young Elisha. He said, I'm going to be pulled away to glory. He says, if I'm there to see it, let me be there. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stick with you. Because this is what God has called me to. And after a number of events, he sees him whisked away. Taken up into the clouds. In a firestorm. And the beautiful thing is that in Scripture, this is not the last time that we see Elijah. Elijah. In Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. Transfigured meaning that his disciples are allowed to see him in all of his heavenly glory there before his three disciples that are closest to him, Peter, James, and John. And who do they see there on the top of the mountain? They see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And as they are there on the top of the mountain, Peter says, let's stay here forever. Let's not do anything else. Let's not move. Let's not go anywhere. And Jesus says, you don't understand what's about to happen. I'm about to go down that hill. I'm about to give myself for the sins of every man, woman, and child on this planet now and everyone who's come before and everyone who will come. He says, you need to follow me down this hill. You need to come. We cannot stay here. If you go along a little bit further in Luke chapter 9, not many verses further, down in uh, verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, after they've just experienced this thing. It says, as they were walking down a road, a man came up and said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and you proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow looks back and is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Three of these disciples have literally just stood with Elijah, the man who was allowed to go back and say goodbye to his family. The man who was allowed to go back and take care of all of the needs of his business that he needed to do. But he did not stay there at the plow. You see what Jesus is doing here. He is saying, you just saw Elijah. What did Elijah do? When he handed off the mantle, we move forward. We get to going. Today we're going to do something different. When we look at this text, we need to, to look at it through the lens of what is God saying to you and what is God saying to me. You see, just like Elijah threw the mantle over young Elisha, Jesus Christ has taken his cloak and has thrown it over you and thrown it over me. 
Now just like Elijah throwing that, that cloak, that mantle over Elisha, in and of itself there was nothing magical or supernatural about that cloak. But it was, it was a process that was going to be in, a process of discipleship. And in the same way, when Jesus says he's going to throw his cloak over you and over me, and he invites us into a discipling relationship, he invites us, he says, come and follow me, and I will make you, I will mold you into being a fisher of men. Come and follow me. There's nothing magical about that moment either. But the call is still the same. The call is still the same. It's an invitation to discipleship. What will you do this morning? As Mario comes forward, we're going to do something a little bit different that we don't typically do in our church on the week to week. Something called an altar call. Many of you know exactly what that is and some of you don't and that's okay. Because when we look at this passage, there's an application that is real for every person in the room this morning, that application of following God's calling on your life. But I do believe for some of you there's, there's something even more specific than that today. The answering of the call to come to Christ. So if you bow your heads this morning and pray with me. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you, you demonstrate in very ordinary human lives the extraordinary the extraordinary purpose you have for each and every one of us Lord I believe there may be some this morning who in a very special way need to answer that call that prompting in their hearts to give themselves over to you I pray that they would be moved in this very moment to put their trust in you. I pray that they would be able to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I surrender to you. If that's you this morning, it's time to get to going. Would you pray with me? Would you pray with me if you're that individual who's hearing the call, who needs to kill the cows and burn the plows and get to going? This is, this is the call. This is, this is the call to Christ that you must hear and respond to. Dear Jesus, the Bible says I'm a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says I cannot save myself. I believe it. The Bible says you gave yourself as a replacement for my sin. I believe it. The Bible says if I ask you in, welcome you in, that you will come in with me and dine with me and be part of my life. Lord, I invite you. Jesus, come into my heart today. I'm answering the call. I'm answering the call. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you keep your heads bowed for just a moment? If you prayed that this morning for the very first time, I want you to do something that maybe you've never done in church before. If everyone else keeps your head down, would you just raise your head up and look at me. Make dead certain that I make eye contact with you. Because this morning you are answering the call. This morning you are sure that God is prompting your heart and that you need to kill the cows, burn the plows, answer that call. Some of you have been believers for a long time, but you've grown stagnant, 
you remember that call, you remember that prompting in your life and you realize and you know that you did not take action. You heard the sirens going off and you did absolutely nothing. At first you felt guilty about it, but as the years have gone by, you've become complacent. And you've been okay with the fact that God has spoke to you and you didn't respond. I ask you the same question, would you look at me this morning? Is God calling you today? Is God calling you today? For those of you that are looking at me right now, did you mean it? When you prayed just a moment ago, they said, God, you're talking to me right now. I need to respond. Did you mean it? If you did, this is what I want you to do. Very clear, I want you to stand to your feet right now and come to the corners right here. Elders, if you'll move, we've got a few elders in the room that are going to meet you here on either side, at the exit doors on either side. Elders, if you'll come down first. If you're answering the call, we've got a few elders who would love to be able to speak to you about it this morning. One on either side. Did you mean it? When you hear the call, kill the cows, burn the plows, get to going. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Lord, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song, a celebration. A celebration that, that one day we will all get to sing the songs together. That one day in glory, we'll be able to raise our voice to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And this morning, we have a group of people who are saying, I am, I'm ready. I've been ready. I want to answer the call. I've answered the call already, and I'm ready to lift my voice and sing before you. So this morning, friends, would all of you please stand? Everyone in the room stand. And we're going to sing this song of worship, sing this song of praise, because God is moving in hearts today. I believe it very strongly. And as we sing, we lift our voices because one day we will gather together in glory because we said yes. We said yes to that prompting of the Holy Spirit. When he says, come, we came. And in doing so, we raise our voices and sing triumphantly because of what Jesus has done. So do that this morning, if you would. Ushers, come forward. Ushers, come forward this morning. Our morning offering happens at this time. It's unusual for us to pass the offering plates while you're standing, but I feel like it's more reverent for us to do so today. So that's a little bit of a change of pace, but if you will pass those offering plates. As a way of response, there's a connection card in, in, the, in the pew in front of you if you need to respond to the message in that way. I'd love to be able to talk to you if God is doing something in your heart. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Lord, we pray that you would change hearts and minds and lives, Lord, and that the ripple effect is not only a song that we sing together, Lord, but that one day we would be a place, Lord, where we are known for the fact that your glory resides in this room, that your presence is like a fire burning in our hearts. Let that begin here 
today. We thank you for the way that you move and that you work. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.